Okay, well, good morning. Um, you know, it's always a pleasure to be here at Mount Hermon, and whenever we have the opportunity to be here, I do not know whether it is ministry or a temptation. Are you with me? Because what a beautiful place and environment and fellowship, and so we're simply thrilled to be with you again and to see some familiar faces and to make some new friends. So good to see you all today. How many of you prayed this morning? Okay, well, that's good. Uh, we collect prayers at our house, and in particular, we collect children's prayers. Little beautiful children's prayers such as this. Um, how about this one? Dear God, Mommy says all babies cry, but I don't think baby Jesus did. You must know the answer, so please write back. We have a bet. <laughs> That's pretty good. Do you have a favorite religion? Here are three to choose from, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian. P.S., I'm Presbyterian. That's a good little prayer from a child. Yeah, I like that. Dear God, please send Dennis Clark to a different camp this year. There's always a Dennis Clark. You know that? Dear God, I have scary dreams at night. Where do they come from, or should I ask the devil that? It's not bad. Dear God, would you make me a little brother? I want somebody to boss around. I love Jenny. She phrased it this way. Please put another holiday between Christmas and Easter. There's nothing good in there now. <laughs> kind of true. Dear God, I bet it was very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. <laughs> There's Nan speaking the truth. Dear God, my turtle died. Is she there with you? If so, she likes lettuce. <laughs> my wife loves this one. Dear God, I went to this wedding, and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? <laughs> Just a couple more. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brothers. <laughs> Amen, right? I hear you. We read Thomas Edison made light, but in Sunday school, they said you did it. I bet he stole your idea. <laughs> One more. Dear God, do you really see everything? How many eyes do you have? There are lots and lots of people down here. I'm going to ask if you'd pray with me again as we get started. Our Father, we come to you realizing that even as we've talked about last night, you're God and we are not. You see inside of us, and you know our hearts. You know, at times when we are tempted to have an external game and you can see right through it. Help us, Lord, as we open up the pages of this little book of Jonah. And maybe we will see ourselves a little too much there. I know I do. You are faithful, and as we have put our minds around that great attribute of who you are, we'll see it in this book, but sometimes, Lord, we realize that uh, we are not that. And so help us as we make a journey through this little masterfully written book. Help us to appreciate how you have revealed yourself and your heart. May we chase after who you are unashamedly. 
Thank you for a beautiful morning where we can hit the pause button to open your word and let your word speak to us. Please do that anew, afresh. May we revel in your holiness and may we strive to be more like our Savior, the model that you have given us, the one who has done everything for us, that paid the price for our sins. May we follow him and him alone. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. This is our family that Mark alluded to moments ago. They're getting big. They're flying the coop. And yes, we have a wedding that is planned on December the 1st. So the young lady that you see in the picture to your right, to my left in the photo, her name is Kayla, and Kayla is 23 years of age, and she is marrying a young man by the name of Garrett Chandler, and we love him dearly and his family, and it's a wonderful situation, and everything other than the fact that no one told me how much a wedding actually costs, everything is great. But my children, like many of yours and grandchildren, have taught me much. And that's Kayla now. This was Kayla then, the age of three. And I will never forget this moment because step back in time with me. It was 1999. She's three years of age. And anybody remember flying before 9-11? Anybody? Do you remember those days? It's interesting talking to a younger generation about that. They have absolutely no clue of what we're referencing. I remember those days going to the airport, anticipating seeing someone that I loved walk right off the plane down the corridor, and it was a family love fest right there in the middle of the airport. Well, step back in time. It's 1999. It's pre-9-11, and I had flown off on a ministry weekend I left on Friday afternoon. I was going to do a conference at a church, and I was flying back Sunday night. Jennifer and Kayla were coming to the airport to pick me up. They were there waiting at the gate, and as I came off, somehow Kayla broke loose of Jennifer's hand, and it was release the hound. And as all the people piled off, I could hear this little bitty voice saying, Daddy, I glowed, I glowed, I glowed. Daddy, I glowed. She's dodging in and out of people, and she's saying, Move out of the way. She slams into my leg, and I did what only a good father would do at that moment. I said, Well, whose child is this? <laughs> well, it was too late. I'd been exposed, and she was holding on, hugging, and she was saying, Daddy, I glowed, I glowed, I'll show you. Well, I knew exactly what this little girl wanted to do. She wanted to go home and stand here. Well, you probably had them at your house, too. She was the first because she's our oldest, and so we had a board. And that board by our back door is where every child would stand at attention. And we would put that line on it and take a step back and gaze at it to see their growth. Well, here was the problem. I had been gone for less than 48 hours. <laughs> so all the way home. Talk, 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 talk. Daddy, I glowed, I glowed, I glowed. She drug me out of the vehicle. She stood at attention. I grabbed that pencil and the little board, and I did what any good father would do at that moment. I said, 
Dear Lord, please forgive me for this sin I am about to commit. (laughs) And I got it, and I inched it up just a little bit because we'd measured it on Friday afternoon. And so 48 hours later, I put that little line convincing and telling myself that she had to have grown to some extent. And so I put that little line and she stood back and she was so proud. And she said, I knew it. I knew I had grown, daddy. I thought it was all over. That night, I was putting her in bed and I was reading a book. And as she normally would do, she has a very inquisitive mind. I thought she was paying attention to the book, but instead... Halfway through the book, she said, Daddy, I have a question. And I said, what is that? And she said, why do big people stop growing? I thought about all these science classes that I'd had and about entropy and the laws of thermodynamics and what happens to the cellular structure. And I was getting ready to come up with a good scientific answer. No, I didn't go there at all. I just said, look, that's just the way it is. And so we big people, we just grow this, stop growing this way, and then we grow this way. And she went, that's kind of funny. Okay. I thought that was great. Hugged her, tucked her in, kissed her goodnight. I was in bed that evening. And that's when it hit me. It wasn't a question of why do big people stop growing. It was a question of why do big people stop growing spiritually. That's a whole other question for us, isn't it, friends? Why do big people stop growing spiritually? I want to I tell us the answer, but then I want us to unpack it. Here's the real reason we stop growing. We stop growing spiritually when we stop pursuing the heart of God. Let me say that one more time. We stop growing spiritually when we stop pursuing the heart of God. Enter the book of Jonah. This is a fascinating little book. And in our morning sessions, as you've seen in your schedule and handout, in our times Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday, we are going to walk through this four chapter, one chapter at a time. And we will unfold this book and let the text speak and let the word of God, Lord willing, come through it and challenge us with, are we growing spiritually? Because I really believe that is the heart of this book. It asks us to evaluate ourselves in light of this powerful narrative to say, Lord, are we chasing after your heart? And we're going to do that in a very unique way, one day at a time. So as some introductory things as we jump into this book, you are keenly aware that there have been many interpretive approaches to this book. You are aware that there are those that are out there that view this as a non-historical account. Come on, talk to me. Why is the number one reason that people approach this as a non-historical account? Why? Because of the large fish. Well, I want to put this question over here on the side and say, tomorrow, tomorrow, I am going to solve the mysteries of the universe as it relates to Jonah chapter 1 going into chapter 2 related to the large fish. Okay, But you have to wait until tomorrow. That is the number one reason people look at this and say, how in the world 
could that kind of miracle occur? They'll reference it as fiction, as a moral story, as allegory, or even as a parable because this book is very richly written. But obviously, you know where our position is at Dallas Theological Seminary in what I will teach from this week. I totally understand this to be a historical account. And because of that, we can reference this as a historical parable because it is certainly told in a progressive manner. Sometimes it will be referenced as a prophetic narrative, as a satirical narrative, or even as a historical narrative. But here's what I want us to see and what I don't want us to miss, friends. This book is a literary masterpiece that is meant to teach. And what I want us to see as we dive into it fairly deeply, I want us to be challenged from what I'm going to pose for us as growth indicators. In other words, as the author begins to focus in, in this powerful little book, we're going to have to let our hearts be opened up. And we're going to have these moments where I'm going to give us these challenges of, as we stand there spiritually at our own little board saying, Lord, when I look back, am I growing spiritually? And I'll have three of those growth indicators every day for us as we continue to move forward in this powerful little book. Well, as a background to it, and I invite you to turn there now, if you will, to Jonah chapter 1 or to open up your screen on your phone or in your iPad and go to Jonah chapter 1. And as the text opens up, it starts off and it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, in terms of the background, while I don't want to spend too much time there, uh, there are some interesting things that we see as this book begins. Jonah 1.1 says that uh, he was the son of Amittai. He's giving a genealogical tag just like many of the other prophets. There is a consistency in how Jonah is talked about as opposed to other prophets. The only other time, though, that Jonah in the Old Testament is specifically referenced is found in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. We get a little insight into who he is. As a prophet who was the son of Amittai, we'll talk about that in just a minute, he was from the town and the region that is referenced as Gath-Hephar, which was near Nazareth. Now, that's very helpful for us because it paints a picture that this is now occurring, the ministry of Jonah during the time of Jeroboam II. Ballpark, that is going to mean between 786 and 746. The reason that is important for us in understanding this book is that that northern kingdom of Israel, is in a great time of prosperity. They are expanding the borders geographically, but their hearts are far from Yahweh. There is a growing chasm between the growth and the prosperity and who they are chasing after the things of God. As a matter of fact, that is why some of the other prophets occurred during that time. Remember Hosea and Amos? 
Their ministries are paralleling during this time because God is sending his prophets to his people saying, repent, come back to me. And here in the midst of this, we see Jonah, who is also a prophet of the northern kingdom, that is called by God to go into the heart of the Assyrian empire, in particular, into Nineveh. Now, in Nineveh's history, according to the Assyrian Empire, it had once been the capital. But there, towards the end, it served not as the capital, but as the heart of commerce and trade. And if I can parallel it for us, when we think about significant cities in the United States, we have one that is the capital, but we have one that is the heart of commerce and trade. We would think of New York City. And maybe that's a little bit of what is going on here when Jonah is called out of the northern kingdom to go into the heart of the Assyrian Empire. But as this book starts, we realize that in terms of its literary style, it is a powerfully written book. It is utilizing narrative language all along the way in the presentation to help the reader see the power of the message. Now, one of those things that we must be familiar with is the utilization of a trait that we're all familiar with, and that is irony. Now, irony is, by definition, an incongruity or a discrepancy. That is, in many ways, the way we use it today. Something strange happens, and what do we say? Oh, isn't that ironic? We know what that means. To open that up just a little bit, I'd phrase it this way. It's a figure of speech, an event, a statement, etc., that occurs or is used in a way just the opposite of what is expected. It's John Fritham that phrases it this way. Irony is commonly used by those who wish to state a truth to those who are guilty of prostituting it. Now, when we open up Jonah chapter 1, it happens so fast, this use of irony. Here's why. Because Jonah has a meaning. Now, we're going to have a little fun here. I'm a Bible prof. I'll try not to go too much Bible prof nerd, as my daughter says. But we're going to learn a little Hebrew this way. So, Jonah, go ahead and say it with me and repeat after me. Yonah. Yonah. Okay, very good. Now, you know some Hebrew. Okay, so when you go to Israel, and by the way, remember, it is the Lord's will for you to go to Israel. Okay? So when you go to Israel, you might stay at a kibbutz, and you might be there with the locals, and, and when you come out in the morning, it's a beautiful morning in Israel, and you look up into a tree, and you're standing there with your Israeli tour guide because it's law for them to be there, and so they're right there with you, and you look up into that tree, and you point, and you say, Yona, Yona, and he or she says, Tov, tov, which is good, good. And he's expecting you or she's expecting you to speak some more Hebrew. And you're going to say, look, that's all Yarbrough taught me right there. Yonah. And here's in essence what you said. You saw a bird and you pointed to that bird because Yonah, Jonah by definition, means dove. Now, that's kind of fascinating. Um, we don't think of our names having a lot of meaning unless you like doing what I do. Anybody like hanging out at Cracker Barrel? Anybody? You go to Cracker Barrel and you stand there at the, the spin the wheel and you find your name. It's great American marketing. I found mine the other day and it said, Mark, victorious warrior. 
You know, Mark doesn't mean victorious warrior. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. It's American marketing. But in many of the Old Testament language, words have meaning. And Yonah was his name, but it meant dove. Now, when you even think about dove in the Old Testament, go ahead and talk to me. It's okay. What comes to mind? Yeah, somebody heard Noah. Good job. There were two birds that were sent off. What else comes to mind? Sacrifice. If you go back into the Pentateuch, right? In particular, if you go back into the book of Leviticus, a Yonah was one of the primary birds that was used. And so when we think in an Old Testament imagery, Yonah makes us think of peace. It makes us think of sacrifice. Now, here, here, here's what I'm trying to get at. How ironic is that? Because this man that we're going to study this week, he was anything but a picture of peace and sacrifice. See, friends, it gets worse because the opening line says, when the word of the Lord came to Yonah, son of Amittai. What if I told you that Amittai, it was his real genealogical name, but it comes from a Hebrew word that means exactly truth. Now, again, how ironic is that? He is anything but what his name means, Yonah, in anything but a picture of truth or truthfulness, right? Because we know where this story is going. It is the utilization, the author is, of heightening the narrative traits for us to see. Oh, yeah, here's a man who should be a picture of what his namesake represents. And we know as the story unfolds, he will be anything but that. Jump back into the text. Here we are. The word of the Lord came to Yonah, son of Amittai. And here's what it says, verse 2. Arise, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. It's pretty clear in Jonah 1, 1 through 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, do this. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. The Hebrew ear, when they heard this, they understood exactly what it was. Many times, this particular phrasing is referenced as a prophetic mandate. Uh, let, me, let me show you exactly what I'm talking about. The Lord speaks to the prophet, and the prophet obeys. Uh, it is the exact same phrase that shows up at least 18 times elsewhere. The exact phrase, you insert a different prophet. So let me give you an example in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 through 10. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Here's the anticipated next phrase. Go at once to Zarephath. So he went to Zarephath. Makes sense, right? The, here's another one. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. But our text says, the word of the Lord came to Yonah, son of Amittai, rise, go to the great city of Nineveh. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. The Hebrew ear, they were at shock when they heard this. How could a prophet of God hear the word of God and not obey what God says? And I vaguely hear the voice of my children, church, teacher say, everybody knows you can't run from God. <laughs> How true. 
How true. The text leads us early on on a journey. Why would this prophet of God hear the word of God and not obey? Well, maybe it was because of the sins of the Assyrians. I mean, they were many. We probably know more about the Assyrian Empire in terms of extra-biblical material than any other kingdom. And here's what I can summarize for us, friends. They were known for great polytheism. That was certainly a challenge to the Jewish people, correct? Of course. They were known for brutality and exploitation and violence. The series of walls that we know about the city of Nineveh, where when they would capture another nation, where they would skin their captives and place their skins on the outside of the city walls in order to show their power. They were known for witchcraft and sorcery. They were known for great alcohol abuse. I was recently reading a book that made a strong argument that the downfall of the Assyrian Empire was due to the alcoholic prowess of many of their upper-level leaders. It's a fascinating writing. They were also known for prostitution and illicit sexuality. Maybe Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because of who they were, what they were known for, how that was anti what God had asked of his people. But no matter how you cut it, the prophet had an instruction from the living God, and he chose not to obey. Friends, here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to Yonah, son of Amittai. Arise, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Yonah ran away from the Lord, and he headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. You see this in your English text pretty clear. He went down to Joppa. The word that is used there, friends, it occurs six times elsewhere in this text because he goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. He goes down into the belly of the boat. Spoiler alert, we know where this story is going, right? He's thrown overboard. He's going to go down to the bottom. He's going to go down into the belly of a fish. It is the author's way of showing us by repetition that when you run from God, it's always a downward spiral. Remember I told us there are growth indicators? I think the author has led us there. Growth indicator number one, friends, is this. A life that is growing spiritually is moving towards God's commands, not away from them, regardless of the difficulty. A life that is growing spiritually is moving towards God's commands, not away from them, regardless of the difficulty. And friends, I don't know about you, but when I am in a position in my life and I find myself running from what God wants, I always find this to be true. There's always a boat at Joppa. And I always pay a price when I choose to get on board. And you and I, if the truth be known, we could open up our stories and we have way too many receipts 
of the price that has been paid when we ran from what God longed for and desired for in our lives. Friends, I'm keenly aware that some of us may be here this week and you have something very specific that you're running from. God has already spoken to you. He has put people around you, a particular situation that you know exactly what he wants you to do. And just like Yonah, we've chosen to step away and pretend that God cannot see us. May we not fall into that same trap because a life that is growing spiritually is moving towards the commands of God, not away from them. Well, look what happens. The story quickly starts moving. It says, verse 4, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Now, by the way, do you see in verse 4 where it says, Then the Lord, L-O-R-D, in our English Bibles, it's probably in all caps. Do you see that there? L-O-R-D. The reason it's all caps is because it's the proper name for God, right? The Lord, who's in charge of this storm? The author wants us to know there's no ambiguity. There's no question. God is still on the pursuit of his prophet. The Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. The author seems to be showing us two particular things here. First of all, these Gentile sailors, these pagan sailors, we know they're not Jewish. Israel has never been anywhere in the text a major seafaring people. They are individuals not of Israel, but they're there. And you know when most people get spiritual? When? When they're in the ditch. When the wheels have come off. And there they are about to die because this is no ordinary storm. God is in charge. And these are the sailors that have been there, done that, got the t-shirt. They weren't afraid of the open waves and the wind. But on this one they were. The author wants us to see that they cry out to their own God, little g. You see that in your Bible. And they even did something very unique. They took their cargo and they threw it overboard. The author is wanting us to see that they are so desperate that they are willing to forgo all of their financial gain because when it comes to the end, sometimes people let go of everything because they're finally zeroing in on what really matters. Here you have these individuals that are doing everything they can do. But here's what has gone on. Look at what it says in the second part of verse 5. But Yonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. That is incredibly peculiar. The boat's shaking back and forth. They're throwing cargo overboard. And here is our prophet of God that is in a deep sleep. Okay, I'm going to go on record here and let you know. I am not a licensed biblical counselor. Are we all in agreement there? This is being recorded, okay? I am not a licensed biblical counselor, but a lot of what I do is counsel with people. Now, this is not true all of the time, but a lot of times if I am working with believers 
and, and they're describing a life situation and what's going on, I will frequently hear the language that says, oh, no, I'm just tired all the time. I have, I have no energy. Now, look, there are all sorts of things that can cause that, and I acknowledge that. There are all sorts of challenges that we may have that occur that lead us to sleep. But I find it fascinating that here the prophet of God whose heart is in rebellion, who is running from God, is in a deep sleep. I think he's depressed because of his rebellion of the heart. And look at what happens. He's down there asleep and verse 6 says this. It says, the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, arise, call on your God. Maybe he will take note of us, of us and we will not perish. Friends, the Hebrew ear again understood this. Do you note the very first word of the captain of the ship? He says, arise, get up. What if I told you it is the opening word that God uses when he says, Jonah, get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Here we have the captain of the ship that is repeating the opening line of Yahweh because God is still chasing after his prophet. I am stunned at this. Can I ask you a question? Aren't you amazed at the fact that God did not quit on you and me when we quit on him? That's the faithfulness of God. Look at what happens. Verse 7. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Yonah. Man, if this had been a movie, that would have been a great moment. Slowly pan the camera in. That last rolling of what had been thrown out, and it designates Jonah, and then the camera looks at him with that sheepish look on his face because he is a guilty, rebellious prophet. So here's what happens. They go after him. So they asked him, verse 8, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? If, you, if you'll allow me a little license in my translation here, Jonah stands up and clears his throat. <clears throat> and he says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. You good-for-nothing Gentiles. You already know. The incredible irony here. Listen to this. Edwin Good phrases it this way. Jonah's theology is unexceptional, but like so much theology, it seems to make no difference to his actions. We are certainly intended to perceive the incongruity between the prophet's confession of God as creator of the sea and his attempt to escape on it. Growth indicator number two, friends. A life that is growing spiritually shows a consistency between words and works. You have read the same reports that I have. When non-believers look at the lives of believers, 
in all of the polls, yes, there are other issues that are going on here, and ultimately, it is a spiritual shield. I acknowledge that. But do you know what the number one thing that non-believers say about those that profess the name of Jesus? The reason that they say they don't believe is what? Because they hear our words, and they see our actions, and they say, why is there a chasm between the two? For the life that is growing spiritually shows a consistency between the talk and the walk, between what we say and how we live. And if you are like me, you reflect on your own walk of faith and realize that there are times when that is simply not true of us. The story continues, doesn't it? After verse 9, here's what happens in verse 10. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And here's what he says. This is the first of three times where Jonah has a death wish. He says, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come up on you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. It's amazing. Man, this is an amazing thing. Perry Brown phrases it this way. He says, Jonah's fear is a feeble thing for all of its orthodoxy. The runaway prophet is shown in a bad light. The crew and the captain can teach him many a lesson about his own faith. Do you notice what it says in verse 13? Look at the first word I'm reading from the NIV. It says, after Jonah says, throw me overboard, it says, instead, instead the men did their best to row back to land. That is absolutely amazing. You know what Mark Yarbrough would have said? Bon voyage. Do not let the door hit you on the way out. Whee! And the author wants to show us, listen to this, that the Gentile sailors went to great lengths to save the Jewish runaway prophet who was sent to take the good news to the Gentiles. Oh, the irony. Verse 14, look at it. It says, then they, who's they in the context? Check for your antecedent. It's the Gentile sailors. Then they cried out to the Lord, L-O-R-D. You tell me, is it all caps or not? They are now crying out to who? Yahweh, the God of Israel. Oh, Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, oh, Lord, have done as you have pleased. See, they are crying out, according to verse 14. They have moved from that generic name for deity of Elohim into calling out to Yahweh, the God of Israel. And it says in verse 15, they took Jonah and they threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, L-O-R-D, and they made vows to him. Friends, as this chapter comes to a close, do not miss the contrast 
of Jonah and the Gentiles. Think about it throughout this book. Each sailor of the Gentiles, they call out to his own God. You remember that? Jonah, the captain must request that Jonah call out to his God. The sailors attempt to save Jonah's life. Jonah is fleeing lest the lives of the Gentiles be saved. The sailors fear the Lord. Jonah claims that he fears the Lord. Sailors offer sacrifices to the Lord. Spoiler alert, Jonah makes vows later in the book and promises to offer sacrifices to the Lord, but nowhere in the book does he ever do it. See, friends, here's our third growth indicator. Growth indicator number three, a life that is growing spiritually exhibits a testimony to the non-believing world, not the other way around. A life that is growing spiritually exhibits a testimony to the non-believing world, not the other way around. Have you ever had a moment in your life where, in essence, you have really been confronted by the life of a non-believer and their walk was a little more of what Jesus wants than yours was? The first church that I worked at I was privileged uh, to lead this. It was a fascinating church. Um, we had roughly 200 people. Get a load of this, okay? We had 70 kids that were in a youth program. We had two middle-aged adults that were in their upper 20s. Their names were Mark and Jennifer Yarbrough. And then everybody else was over the age of 75. It was a very unique mix. And Jennifer and I had the great privilege of working with this large group of kids, and they had absolutely no family involvement whatsoever. And it was a two-and-a-half-hour bus ride to pick all the kids up and get them to church. And, and we had this fleet of buses, and we had a guy by the name that was uh, the deacon of the buses, and his name was F.M. Young. F.M. Young was a great godly man, but he, he had been in the Marines. And if you ever have a deacon that has a former Marine, that actually brings a very interesting mix into how they will utilize their governorship at church. So he was in charge of all of the buses. And, and it was one of those statements, you know, where it was like, I can hear him to this day. The way the bus leaves the parking lot is the way the bus comes back. There is no trash and it is full of gasoline. You're going to hear the... Well, we had a, a Saturday night event where Yarbrough had not planned accordingly. And um, we planned it late into the evening, and then I took all the kids home. And, and as I'm coming back, it's about like 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and I look in the, at the gas gauge, and it was almost empty. And, and I was tempted to just pull it on into the church parking lot and park it, but uh, I decided I had to go to the gas station and fill it up. So I pulled in. Remember, I, I've got the, the, the Jesus T-shirt on from that night, right? Okay, And I'm pulling up in the church bus, the big church name on the side, and um, I pull out the church credit card. You hear a theme here. And I pull up, and I got the gas pump, and I put it in, and it was off. You know, you had to go inside and tell them to turn it on. It was before the days of using the credit card at the machine. So I'm kind of a little agitated. You know, I've, I've got things to do the next morning. I've got kids to teach about the holiness of God and about <laughs> the fruits of the Spirit and things like that. So I'm a little worked up here. And I walked in, 
And I stood at the counter, and the night attendant was there. And I need to describe him to you. I could see him in the back. He's got hair down to his knee. He's got big, giant tattoos, and he's got this vulgar T-shirt on. And I'm standing there trying to be polite. I've got the church credit card, the church T-shirt, the church bus is outside. And I'm kind of standing there doing all the polite things. Ahem, ahem trying to get his attention. And he's on the phone with his girlfriend, and I could hear this. Oh, baby, I love you. I love you. And I'm like, look, dude, I, I am about the holiness things of God. Would you please do your job? And <clears throat> finally, he gets his attention. He, he wakes up and kind of sees me. He drops his sunglasses, and he kind of looks over the top at him, and he kind of he hangs up a phone, and he starts working towards me. I had had enough. It's a horrible moment in my life. I took that credit card as I'm standing there. I'm tapping it on the glass countertop, and I kind of flipped it. It's a horrible moment in my life. Anybody remember the Wonder Years? Remember that show? Anybody? Remember when things would go into slow motion? Okay, here's what happened. That credit card, I threw it, kind of flipped it, and it goes boom, 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 boom. Bing! Hits the glass countertop. It bounces left. Okay, over here, there is a Tic Tac stand with 218 packets of Tic Tacs, it somehow unlodged the bottom one. 218 packets of Tic Tacs go sliding across this glass counter. Whoa, whoa, we're not done yet. Over on this side is this huge thing that has over 1,200 individual gumballs in it. It slides across the table, and it hits the gumball thing, and all 1,018, they all just start coming around. They're bouncing on the dirty tile floors, and I'm standing back. And in my arrogance, I think, ha! Take that, lover boy. And I stormed out, kind of, you know, made a moment pushing the glass doors out, going to the, the church van with the church name in my Jesus t-shirt and left him with the church credit card. And as I stood there putting the gas in, the Holy Spirit slapped me upside the head. What a horrible moment for a child of faith. Because I promise you, that guy, that guy did not know the Lord. And as I stood there thinking, Lord, I am so sorry. How could I ever talk to this man again? I, I walked back in after I'd finished putting the gas in, and he met me at the door. What I didn't know is that he was six foot six. And I thought, this is where my life ends. Friends, he said these words that I will never forget because they're etched on my heart like a bad tattoo. He said, and I want to quote him, dude, was his first word, dude, I'm sorry, man. I'm going to try to do a better job. You tell me. At that moment, who was living more like Jesus? A life that is growing spiritually exhibits a testimony to the non-believing world, not the other way around. So here we are today. Why do big people stop growing spiritually? Are we moving toward God? Is there a consistency between our words and our works? And do we present a good testimony 
to the world around us. Friends, this is a great week to go and stand at your own individual board and reflect and say, Lord, I want to grow. Because you know what I think he wants to hear from his children? The prayer that he longs for us to bring to him. I'm growing, Daddy. I'm growing. Lord, thank you for your incredible patience with us. We acknowledge that we have a long way to go. Help us this week to take these indicators in our own, each and every one of us, our individual walks. Help us to identify areas that we need to submit to your heart. Lord, work in us and through us so that tomorrow we're more like our Savior than we are today. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name.